Welcome to Today in TO. I'm Danny Stover. It feels like the calm before the storm. But I mean, also, we just kind of had a big storm, politically. And so maybe it's the calm after the storm. Or maybe we're in the eye of the hurricane. And while all might be quiet on the city hall front, for now, we have a really cool opportunity ahead of us. Here's Edward Keenan with the Toronto Star. There is a chance with the field wide open and this many people thinking about getting in that a, that a couple people emerge and actually do have a real debate because I feel like for the last eight years, John Tory has been so inevitable that we basically just kind of like, you know, yada, yada, yada the, the whole election campaign. But wait, you yada, yada over the best part. And listen, whoever does choose to run will have a lot of work to do. Here's City Hall Bureau Chief for the Star, David Ryder. Yeah, there's just so many people who want the job. And at the moment, I look at it and I think, like, why would anybody want it? But whoever's coming in has, I'd have to think, the biggest challenge, probably since Mel Lassman, when he had to kind of, like, get these municipalities that were forced together in a marriage and try and make them operate as one city. Now, you've got a very different different challenge and, and no immediate solution. And so, one of the biggest problems is that the city is broke. And this is Kind of like when you're a kid and you ask your parents for something and they're like... At the moment, like we can't afford it. So you'll hear more about the monies, how much the city is in the hole, and how we can possibly begin to fill it. Also, there's a big Toronto connection to this investigation alleging Chinese interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal election. Or I guess I should say it's more like the nomination process. And conspiracists have entered the chat, and this time they're upset about... Oh, you've got to be kidding me. 15-minute cities. The problem with this attack by the QAnons, by the conspiracy theory folks, is that it's based on deliberate lies that are intended to confuse, to misinform, and to frighten and anger. And you can't have a serious conversation when people have decided that they can't trust you, you're lying, and there's nothing you can say that can inform or convince. That was city planner Brent Todrian, and you'll hear more about the 15-minute city, how it got twisted into something it's not, and how we can implement something like it here in Toronto. The mixed-use neighborhood part, not the QAnon part. Hey, do you hear that? Yeah, it's quiet. You know, it's uh, a little too quiet. It it is relatively quiet because uh, there's still a lot of people working from home and obviously there's no Mayor Tory kind of coming in and out and working like crazy hours like he used to. Uh, We have uh, uh, Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey, but who's sort of, you know, coming and going. But I would say there is like one big dark cloud, which kind of affects everything, which is the city's ruined finances. That was David Ryder, City Hall Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. And yeah, so if you think your finances are in bad shape, the cities are much, 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 much worse. We're in a hole that's over $1 billion deep. And I'm starting to think that John Tory is scamming us because he passed the city's $16 billion operating budget, which includes $48 million bucks more to the police piece of the pie, by far the biggest slice. And then he was like, oops, got to go, leaving us with quite the mess. John Tory said he was going to like 
hammer away at the province and the federal governments and get them to fill it up as kind of a, another pandemic bailout, which we've had a couple of them. He's now gone. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have that kind of person with that kind of relationships with Doug Ford or Christian Freeland to kind of uh, uh, hammer on them. And actually, John Tory, for all his, you know, uh, vaunted access, hadn't got any action. Well, I mean, I don't know about that. I think John Tory got some action, just not the type of action one needs to effectively run the fourth largest city in North America. And so what are we asking for exactly? Let's break it down. According to the city's website, the 2023 operating budget expects $1.8 billion in necessary funding from the federal and provincial government to address the ongoing impacts of the pandemic, which amounts to $933 million, refugee shelter response at $97 million, and supportive housing at $48 million. And that's not all. This amount, combined with the shortfalls from the previous year, $484 $484 million. Now, the required funding is actually closer to $1.56 billion. Now, there is this reserve fund. But as you'll hear from David Ryder, it's kind of like that time I asked my parents if I could get that daybed that I saw in the Sears catalog. At the moment, like we can't afford it. There's there's one like reserve fund that they're using as a backstop that says if nothing comes yeah. through, we'll use this But it's one time, and then we'd have the same expenses next year and no way to fill that hole. Okay, so there's a reserve, but don't call it a reserve. It's like a rainy day fund in case of emergency. But let me ask you this, Toronto. At what point do we stop acting like that everything is fine meme? Also, I forgot to add that the city will also be on the hook to spend another $13 million or so on the upcoming by-election, which I will add could be spent elsewhere. We know this. Here's Lily Chang, city councillor for Ward 18, Willowdale. It's shocking to me that we have a $9.5 billion state of good repair backlog. And to me, that means we're, we're taking a loan out of the future of the city. And the thing about state of good repair is it doesn't just stay still as a a financial cost. It grows exponentially. When you don't fix that pothole today... By the time you get around to it, the hole is bigger and the cost of labor is more. So, yes, I mentioned the by-election. And even with this annoying cost, I'm actually really looking forward to a low threshold. Invite all your friends. Hoot nanny by-election. Here's Edward Keenan, city columnist for the Toronto Star. There is a chance with the field wide open and this many people thinking about getting in that a couple people emerge and actually do have a real debate, because I feel like for the last eight years, John Tory has been so inevitable that we basically just kind of like, you know, yada, 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 the whole election campaign. But you yada, yada over the best part. So tell me, what's the deal with this by-election? I've got a few dates for you to jot down. The date for the by-election to replace John Tory has been tentatively set for June 26th, which would mean... If this is agreed upon at the next scheduled council meeting at the end of March, nominations would open at 8.30 a.m. on April 3rd and close May 12th at 2 p.m. Now, speaking of elections, reporters with Global News and the Globe and Mail have been investigating claims that there was Chinese influence in the 2019 federal election, alleging that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's senior aides were briefed by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS, that there was a probe 
into an interference scheme. Now, Global's reporting stated that CSIS focused on at least 11 candidates in the GTA who were either wittingly or unwittingly helped by the Chinese consulate in Toronto to get them into Parliament. Here is Global News national reporter Mackenzie Gray on what they found out through this eight-month investigation. We have come out with the name of the first of the 11 candidates. His name is Han Dong. He is the current MP for Don Valley North. The ways in which it is alleged that the Chinese consul in Toronto helped out in this situation were two ways during the nomination meeting uh, in 2019, which is when the candidate who had previously been elected in that riding decided not to run again. First way was that they bust in Chinese Canadian seniors to vote in the nomination meeting, uh, and they knew who to vote for, according to sources and CSIS documents, because they had Mr. Dong's name written on their arm. The second way was that they pressured Chinese international students who were here in Canada to come vote at that meeting and bust them in as well. And they said, if you did not come and vote in these meetings, you might have issues with your student visas when you came to reapply. Again, that is according to CSIS documents and sources. MP Handong responded with a written statement basically saying that, quote, all procedures and processes related to my campaign and political career have been continually, transparently and publicly reported as required. He goes on to say, quote, Canada's democracy is integral to public service. I will support fact-based efforts from parliamentarians to investigate alleged offshore interference and, if called upon, look forward to refuting these anonymous and unverified allegations. So we can all agree these are serious allegations. In this case, it's not the outcome of an election, the actual general election. It's the outcome of the nomination meeting. You know, Don Valley North, this riding that what we've alleged to have happened, has been a reliably red riding uh, since 1993. That area has been somewhere where the Liberals have won, basically with the exclusion of the Harper majority, where they absolutely got wiped off the map, pretty much. So if you're China in this situation, what's easier to influence? A nomination meeting where we know previously... You know, it's, it's no surprise for political watchers that nomination meetings have a lot of crazy things happen at them. Uh, you can, non-Canadians can vote in these meetings. Uh, it's, it's much different. The, the rules are different than in a general election. And, you know, political parties are private organizations. They can nominate who they want in these situations. Uh, so, you know, the Prime Minister might be using some weasel words, saying that the outcome of the election was not changed. But that doesn't mean that there are not serious allegations that need some answers to about what happened, either in nominations or in other situations. So it sounds to me that this is less about the actual election and more about the nomination process. Mackenzie Gray goes on to say, There have been plenty of circumstances in Canadian history where a preferred candidate is parachuted in without a nomination meeting, or someone who wins a meeting is deemed not to be uh, acceptable by the party for whatever reason. They don't pass the vetting test, uh, and their nomination papers are not signed, and someone else comes in. So uh, that didn't happen in this case. So guess what? The prime minister was asked, point blank, were you, your office, or any Liberal Party staff ever warned before or after the 2019 election about CSIS concerns that Mr. Hongdong was suspected to be involved in any foreign interference? And if they were informed, why did the Liberal Party allow him to run? Okay, give me a yes or no. Trudeau, you're up. 
There are 1.7 million Canadians who proudly trace their origins back to China. Those Canadians should always be welcomed as full Canadians and encouraged to stand for office, to get involved in their communities, and to take on part of the leadership of this country. That's one of the great things about this country. Let me say that we are extraordinarily lucky and happy to have a member of parliament like Han Dong uh, in our midst, serving his community, serving our country alongside Chinese Canadian MPs from different parts of the country, alongside an extraordinary diverse group of, uh, of MPs who are proud Canadians, even as they trace their origins to elsewhere around the world. And that is as it should be. Okay, so not really an answer, but I've been thinking about this a lot, and I agree with him. I think it's really important that we don't conflate Chinese people with the Chinese Communist Party. Because at the end of the day, that might be what they want us to do. Trudeau went on to say this. It's also very important to highlight that we have national security intelligence agencies who are there to protect all Canadians of all different origins, as well as our democratic processes. And we always engage with them and listen to them. But let me also be very clear to a really important point that I think uh, some folks are choosing to overlook. In a free democracy, it is not up to unelected security officials to dictate to political parties who can or cannot run. That's a really important principle. We, of course, draw on the expertise every step of the way. But the suggestions we've seen in the media that CSIS would somehow say, no, this person can't run or that person can't run, is not just false, it's actually damaging to people's uh, confidence in our democratic and political institutions. Isn't this kind of wild, though? You should trust those who were elected democratically, but these reports allege that the process was manipulated. And you shouldn't trust our literal security detail because they were not elected. My head is spinning. And so on that note, I wanted to flag this conversation with Michelle Junot-Katsuya, who is a former chief of Asia-Pacific at CSIS. He also wrote a book called Nest of Spies. And he says this has been going on for decades at all levels of government and for all parties. All government in the last few decades uh, have ignored the warning that CSUS has brought to their attention about the uh, noting that the, uh, the, the Chinese have tried to influence our democratic process. Way back in the mid-90s, uh, when I was at CSUS uh, in charge of Asia-Pacific, we were already warning the government that we had found evidence in uh, the record of uh, Election Canada that the Chinese embassy was giving money to both political, uh, the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. So if that's the case, why does this time hit different? I think this time we cannot avoid it. I think this time we will be forced to do something. There is currently a committee that is, has been urgently put together that will study the thing. It is a multi-party uh, all the parties are extremely concerned. I think 
the timing is right. Uh, the ray of sunshine that I've seen uh, back in the fall when the Trudeau government finally announced that the uh, Chinese government, government was, and I quote, a disruptor on the international scene. It is an agent of, of influence that is breaking up uh, a lot of alliance. We need to be capable to sort of tackle this from a national security point of view. And we need to rally all the parties together because we are all affected it's not a question of simply sort of pulling on the, the blanket on your side now. You, we need to work together because this is our democracy that is under siege. I've got my eyes on you. And you. And you. Now, here is content producer Glenn Bergonier. Toronto's Graffiti Alley is one of the city's many tourist and social media hotspots that came from less than legal beginnings. If anything, it can actually be traced back to a 24-hour event in 2003 that was called Style in Progress that was meant to highlight five levels of hip-hop, and that included graffiti. It was supposed to bring the artists who were operating in the middle of the night into the daytime and highlight the positives that street art and murals can have on the city. Mayor Rob Ford didn't agree and did his best to actually eradicate all graffiti in Toronto in 2011. That's when Queen West Business Improvement Area decided to fight back and try to get the alley designated as an area of municipal significance, which they won, and even gave birth to a Street Art Toronto, or START, a city-sanctioned program that not only approves, but also provides funding for public murals and other forms of graffiti art. Some of the biggest names in graffiti in the world have murals and pieces that are still up in the alley today, such as the self-proclaimed king of Instagram murals, Doro III, and some other Toronto locals and favorites like Deadboy, Poser, and Elixir Elliot. You might have also seen Graffiti Alley if you were a big fan of the Rick Mercer Report, as Rick loved to film many of his rants walking up and down this famous alley. So, what started off as an unofficial favorite location for the middle of the night graffiti artist to come out and show off, quickly developed and became one of the many cultural staples that not only helps Toronto remain so unique, but also so beautiful. Usually, when you think of conspiracy theories, you might think of a flat earth, a moon landing, or lizard people. You don't usually think of city planning concepts, but could you imagine having everything you need all within 15 minutes of your home? Your coffee shop, grocery store, your dentist, doctor, gym, maybe a theater, restaurants, childcare services, a school, library. For many people, this is a reality. But for others... If you want to do those things, you've got to pile into the car, drive around, and since other people are in the same boat as you, or SUV or whatever, they're also in their vehicles trying to get around, leaving us with longer commutes and congestion. Now, the former is an example of a 15-minute city, and it kind of pushes back on the idea that if you build more roads, you will reduce traffic. But actually, more roads means more cars. And we don't need more cars. We need options. And this has struck a chord with some folks online. Brent Todrin is a city planner with over 30 years of experience. Here's the gist. You should have the things you need be local, so you have the choice. And this is really about more choice, more freedom, where you can access things if you want to, by car or by rolling in terms of wheelchair access 
or or biking or even public transit and not be dependent on the car. And of course, since the 1960s, we've been designing communities that are largely dependent on cars uh, with the narrative that that leads to freedom. But it sure ain't free if you don't want to drive or if you can't drive. So this is about fundamentally about choice. And we've been talking about the idea of mixed use, diverse communities forever. And of course, communities used to be this way just normally. Um, you know, whether the term is complete communities or mixed use communities or the city of short distances, there's actually been a lot of ways of describing this concept for probably thousands, not, not just hundreds of years. Yeah, so the 15 minute city concept is not new, but it kind of became popular when the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, made it a part of her re-election campaign and won. And that got some attention, both good and weird. I've been a city planner for 31 years. I've always tried to figure out clever ways to get the, the public's attention so you can have a more engaged conversation that includes everyone in city building. But I've never seen uh, the kind of conspiracy theories that we've usually equated to the conversation about you know, chips in vaccines and such applied to a, a city planning concept. I'm always happy to talk about what it means, what it is and what it isn't. Uh, there's always good faith debate and, and even angry debate uh, between folks who think something's a good idea or not. But let's be really clear. The problem with this attack by the QAnons, by the conspiracy theorists, theory folks, is that it's based on deliberate lies uh, that are intended to confuse, to misinform, and to frighten and anger. And you can't have a serious conversation when people uh, have decided that they can't trust you, you're lying, and there's nothing you can say that can inform or convince. Okay, so I don't know about you, but I'm dying to know, what exactly are these conspiracists saying about the 15-minute city. The narrative became, you're not going to be allowed to drive there at all. You're going to be forced on a bike. You're going to be, you're only going to be able to allow, be allowed to shop in the stores and, and services in your neighborhood. You're going to need a permit to leave your neighborhood. They, they equate the two things that aren't the same thing. They don't just exaggerate to the point of ridiculousness. It's A lot of it is outright lies. And so, as we gear up for a by-election, everything is back on the table. Here's Brent Todrian again with how we can make it work in a city like Toronto. Talk to your communities, understand what local needs mean to your community. The key is that this is always about choice. Just because you're making, uh, you're giving the choice for people to walk and bike to the things they need, doesn't mean they're gonna be forced to. Now, ironically, in much of Canada, we are being forced to drive because that's it literally, the environment's been designed in a way where that's the only rational option. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto. Audio clips in today's episode were from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. I'm Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by moi, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show. And we've got new episodes out every Wednesday. So if you like what you hear, by all means, tell me. But I also ask that you tell everyone else you know. That's all. And if you don't like what you hear, well, then I got a place for you to... I'm kidding. I'm much nicer than this. Seriously, it's fine. Till next time, uh, bye-bye.